Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name is Lewis Webb and each week I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. We're back for a new season with 14 fantastic guests lined up ready to share their lives and insights. Plus we've got a brand new game to play to test their Somerset knowledge to the limits. As ever, your comments, reviews and feedback are always appreciated. And if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guest for the first episode of this season is one of Somerset's living legends in gardening, possibly the country's most recognised and celebrated guru of the no-dig method, Charles Dowding. Based at his market garden farm near Castle Kerry, Charles has pioneered organic food production, written best-selling books on no-dig, and become an internet sensation with his videos and social media channels. We spoke earlier this month and chatted about his life, achievements and philosophies when it comes to the soil and where our food comes from. Charles, welcome to Somerset Stories. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here at Homemakers. You've been here about nine years now, is that yep, right? Yeah, that's it. Has that time gone quickly? Uh, yeah, <laughs> without a doubt. Uh, I, mean, I was mid-50s when I came here and now in my early 60s, looking back on that, in a way though, actually, it feels a long time ago because... Although it's gone fast, so much has happened in the time I've been here. And I reckon I've packed more into my last decade than most of the previous part of my life. So. <laughs> we're also, um, we're not very far from where you grew up as well, is that right? Exactly, six miles down the road, Shepton Montague. Yeah. yeah. You were born into a farming family. Yeah. Did you get involved in the running of the farm at a young age? Not the running of it, but I did some farm work. I was mainly schoolboy, did some work in the holidays, school holidays, mainly in the summer. Farming was not my passion or interest, and uh, it was nice just to be on a farm. Uh, it was, it's a beautiful location in Shepton Montague, but it wasn't my joy to be a farmer. And, and my father didn't want me to be either because I had an older brother who was going to farm, and so I was being more suggested towards um, other careers. And in fact, I went to Cambridge, so that maybe opened up other possibilities. Yeah. You had your older brother, and there's there's three of you. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. What what kind of trouble did you get up to as brothers? <laughs> oh, maybe argue quite a bit. Uh, oh, we're very different actually. It was like chalk and cheese, the three of us, and um, it was great when we were getting on. But we didn't didn't I would say we didn't share a lot actually uh, as kids in terms of we we had our own separate lives a bit. Um, yeah, it, it it wasn't a a really sort of tight family life. So you mentioned your parents sort of wanted to push you towards other interests away from farming. What type of uh, subjects grabbed your attention at school then? Well, <laughs> not many actually. I, there were not many things that, that, that attracted me. I don't know why. And, and when at, at Cambridge in the last year you have something called the milk, milk round, I think it is, where you get firms coming to interview um, potential graduates for, for work. And, and I didn't subscribe to any of those interviews at all. It's just none of what was there appealed to me at all. And I didn't know why. I just felt like a misfit, really. Um, everything makes sense now because I found what I wanted to do and it's, it's very much not in any of those categories. I think my father hoped I might become well, maybe a banker to earn some money or join the Navy to do something different and interesting or whatever. But I didn't. <laughs> it, your parents would have been influenced very much by the sort of economic impact of post-war Britain, um, very much age of austerity, rationing, etc. Yeah. Did that have kind of a knock-on effect as to how 
how your family kind of operated? That's a very good question and it totally did because, for example, my, my mother would never waste a scrap of food and, and I'm the same uh, and I, but I totally see the sense of that. You know, for me, food is really valuable. Why would you want to waste it? Uh, my father was very careful with money. Again, nothing wrong with that as long as you don't take it to, to extreme. But, um, you know, so it, it, was, it was a very stable, solid background that I had there. And uh, in fact, it was one of the big issues my father had with organic farming that, that he saw it as a backward step because it, he felt you couldn't get the yield of food per acre that you can with chemical inputs. Uh, he wasn't looking at the quality of food, it must be said, but I could see his point entirely. And, you know, because they, they'd known food rationing, I think probably... You have to go through those things to just be bitten by them and know how horrible it is sort of thing. Yeah, I suppose when there isn't enough food to go around, the emphasis is going to be on quantity rather than quality, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Then it's all about quantity. And, and I think that's why farmers so much bought into the massive increase of fertiliser use after the Second World War, which very happily coincided with all the munitions factories suddenly not being needed and it's nitrogen, explosives, nitrogen fertiliser, you know, the whole thing just went so hand in hand. So uh, you studied at Cambridge, as you mentioned. Yeah. There is that, that phrase that people use, you know, you can take the boy out of Somerset, but you can't take Somerset out of the boy. Do you know, I'd not heard that phrase. I like it. <laughs> was that the case from, from you uh, while you were studying? Did you have no, that kind of yearning for, for no, home? Because it was the first time I'd really been away. And so it was very exciting and new. And I loved it. <laughs> Actually, it was the, the very much the best bit of my education. Um, but when I, yeah, when I got to the end of three years at Cambridge, I, I did feel, hang on a minute, <laughs> you know, I, I am happier, you know, in, in the background I knew. And, and so I, I came back to Somerset and was still living with my parents, actually, just totally unsure what I was going to do. During that time, I noticed on your website, you mentioned that you became a vegetarian. Yeah. Which... Not maybe as common back then as it is no, these was... days. What kind of reaction did that get? Laughter. <laughs> People found it just quirky and odd because it, no one, it was so rare really. So it was like, what is this? What, what are you doing? Why? Uh, and they, I think amusement more than anything. Or my, my father just called me a rabbit, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, but, but no great debate about it particularly. But I do remember at, at, like at college, um, the, the chefs being very helpful in cooking vegetarian meals for me and that kind of thing. What sort of choice did you did you have at that time <laughs> it wasn't as good as now maybe um you know a lot of eggs and cheese and that kind of thing whereas now i'd favor very much more the vegetables obviously and that kind of thing um, so um, yeah my diet has evolved a lot over many years but it was it was actually became vegetarian through reading a book about animal rights and that that made me think about what was going on in the farm and all sorts of things about society in general actually it was quite profound um reading it's by a professor in australia called peter singer and I think the book is still in print, actually, because it's quite a seminal work of, about, you know, animals farming and what we should eat. You said that sort of after graduating, you didn't really have a starting point as to what you wanted to do next. What was the thought process? Because you couldn't stay at home forever. No, exactly. I, I did discover, though, that I was interested I, through being vegetarian, that got me interested in food and then nutrition. And then being interested in nutrition drew me into looking at how food is produced. And that made me question that some of the methods being used on the farm at home, for example, use of fertilizers, pesticides, things we talked about. And I joined the Soil Association, which had been founded in 1946, been going a long time. Um, that was full of 
old and interesting information, but nothing very new or radical at the time. But it, it, it was enough to keep me satisfied. And in, I saw an advert in their magazine for a job on the island of Iona in the Hebrides uh, to be a maintenance man. And I just thought, right, this is it. I'm going, I'm going to go away, <laughs> do some work, long way away, and, and you know, kind of find myself a bit and see where that leads. Was the Soil Association, as you said, had been up and running for a while. Yeah. Were you kind of the young blood uh, well, at that time? Well, as it turned out, yes. I mean, it's fascinating how these organisations tend to go in cycles. And I didn't realise at the time, but looking back on it now, I would say that in 1981, when I joined, so that's 35 years after it was founded, there was still a lot of the original people in key positions. Um, you know, they had, had been, say, early middle age then, and now they were sort of early old age, if you like, but they were still there. And then through the 80s, uh, as it evolved, yeah, there was a lot of young blood came in and people like Patrick Holden, for example, uh, who, who really took the association forward in, at that time. Um, so it was a time of big change for them. But when I joined it was, yeah, it was quite quaint. <laughs> so up in the, the Hebrides, miles away from anything, <laughs> what, what were your first learnings really in, uh, in growing? Well, not a lot, because I was literally doing maintenance work in the hotel, but then it turned out there were a lot of interesting people at the hotel. And, and, and on Iona, it does attract all sorts of fascinating folk. And the guy who probably influenced me more than any was the gardener, a guy called Jeremy with a very long beard, who uh, then turned out needed a bit of help in the garden, and the hotel owner said, yeah, you can go and help him. And, and that's where I got really interested in organic gardening as well, because that's what he was doing. And at that time, the early 80s, again, the organic movement was virtually non-existent. So it must have been kind of great to find someone who, whose values, I suppose, aligned with where, where your thinking is. such a good point, you know, because now we take it for granted. But then I, I latched on to anybody who had this slightly alternative viewpoint, like Olympic, really, because, yeah, I was surrounded by people who were not into that at all and would question even what, what hell I was doing. So it was wonderful to meet people like him. And then subsequently to meet other organic gardeners and growers through the 80s. And we formed quite a strong alliance that led to the founding of the Organic Growers Alliance, all those kinds of things. It was brilliant. So after that, what was your first solo project? Well, then I, <laughs> I decided after I owned it, yeah, I want to pursue this. I, I, want, I want to do organic gardening commercially, maybe. So I, I, I applied for an internship apprenticeship on an organic market garden in Wales up near Lampeter. And at first I found it really tough because it's a different level of work to just working in a garden to working commercially. The, the speed of work's much faster and more intense. And, and the first few days I hated it. Sent a postcard to my mother, which I wish she kept actually, <laughs> just saying how much I didn't want to do this, I decided. Uh, but after two weeks of doing that, actually I changed my mind quite a bit. And, and also the, the guy, Charlie Waitcher, who I worked for there, was very encouraging. He said, you know, you should do this. You, you could become a, a grower, commercial grower. And he, he was the first person who'd given me that sort of level of confidence, I, I suppose, the feeling that I could do it. And so following that prompt, I decided, right, I'm going to go for it. And then was it a return to Somerset to set up your own first so, garden? Yeah, through that summer, which was 1982. And I did a lot of homework. I, I never went to college in terms of like farming college or horticultural. I'm really grateful for that because it means I didn't learn stuff I didn't need to know. You know, like... I've, I've discovered since, and I would say it now, not, I know not everyone will agree, but I think there's a lot of unnecessary information given to prospective gardeners as well, actually, even in RHS level two, I have a lot of discussions with the RHS about this. Um, you know, they're gradually phasing out, for example, their advice about digging now, finally, but 
much more than that. They're just a lot of information you don't need and which is not efficient. And, and my way of learning was to go around existing market gardens in the, in the 1982 and see what they were doing, where their problems were, and, and working out ways to get around that. And the biggest problem I noticed they were all struggling with was weeds. They were just overrun with weeds. And uh, I thought there's got to be a better way of doing this gardening and market gardening. And so that's... Then I came across the work of Ruth Stout, this American writer on No Dig, and realised that the possibilities of mulching, I mean covering the weeds and, and the soil and that kind of thing, um, had great potential. So that's, that's the avenue I went down. So No Dig was something that came to you quite early on in, yeah, in your, your I mean, journey. Yeah, I've been No Dig since, well, 1983, I suppose you could say, was my first year of No Dig. Because I did rotivate the soil to start with to kill the pasture. I didn't know any other way. Then I shaped up beds. And they became permanent beds, no more soil disturbance. And, and it wasn't like a great awakening dawn of moment of like, hey, this is no dig, because the phrase hardly existed then. And yeah, I was doing it in a kind of subconscious way. Um, more, more prominently, I, I was organic, because that was more, more groundbreaking, than <laughs> the wrong word really, but uh, in, in the 80s, uh, to be organic was still quite remarkable and hippie and unusual and this, all these things, you know, so. Taking a, a bit of a step back, what then is the history of No Dig? Who are its wow, that's kind of inventors? Yeah, I mean, it's like, I'd love to know more myself. Where did it come from? I mean, you know, Rustat, who I mentioned, she, she started in 1947, just on a, on a moment of kind of clarity, almost the plough that was going to, that every year came to plough the garden, didn't turn up for some reason. And uh, she just thought, oh, how do I need the plough? I'll just put some of this old hay on top and, and it worked really well. So. But I don't know where she got that from. I've since discovered writings of a gardener called F.C. King in Levens Hall in Cumbria. And he, he was doing no dig in the early 1940s. And I'm sure that before that, there was loads going on. It's thus, that's the only evidence we have in Western society, if you like, at the moment. But it's something I'd, I'd love to know more. I don't want to kind of give you all the basic questions that I know you get asked in a number of interviews. But I, I would like, for, for the benefit of well, people who are listening who don't know what, the, what, what No Dig is. What is the starting point? What's, what's the process for a No Dig garden? Okay, it's very simple. You basically don't disturb the soil and you feed the surface with organic matter. That's the kind of basic outline, but within that are hidden details which vary according to where you're beginning. So for example, if you're starting with a, a lawn or weedy pasture, um, a lot of weeds, then I, I would suggest some kind of mulch or cover to smother the weeds by keeping them dark so that they die in darkness. That, that's a key starting point. You don't have to do that every year, but that if you've got a lot of weeds, that's a beginning point. What that mulch or cover is will vary according to what you've got, what you want to use. Um, I'm a big advocate of just brown cardboard because that can sit on top of ground, keep the light off and weeds die, usually before the cardboard decomposes because it, it doesn't last forever, two, three, four months maybe, and then it, if, if you've got a simple lawn, like uh, which is mown, therefore the root system's not hugely strong, cardboard is a great way to turn a lawn into a productive garden or a flower bed. You know, it's the same principle whether you're growing ornamentals or fruit or vegetables, whatever. Um, and if you don't have many weeds, you can cut out that whole step. And then I'd, I'd, I suggest compost as the surface mulch. Mulch means any material on top. And what the compost does is feed the soil organisms like earthworms, but also a lot of things you don't see, uh, bacteria, fungi, protozoa, nematodes, you know, all the life in the soil that we're only just finding out about, and fungi as well. And then 
the, the reason I advocate compost in, in our climate, like in Somerset, as opposed to Ruth Stout using hay, as I turn out, found out later, she's in Connecticut, totally different climate, dry hot summers, cold winters, slugs don't survive basically. Whereas we have a lot of slugs here, as your listeners will know from this summer, <laughs> slugs and snails, and when you have wet summer. So um, compost doesn't harbour mollusks, you know, but it doesn't give hiding places, unlike a wet slab of hay or grass. That's one reason I advocate compost. Aside from, you know, saving your back from all that digging, mm. what are the main benefits of the method? Oh, right. Okay. How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, it, it's fascinating because I'm finding out more all the time. Uh, I'm also working with, with a scientist who, who's finding out. She's, she's doing some measurements here. And it's fascinating thing. She's discovering, like, how there's more carbon in no-dig soil, for example. You know, such a powerful reason now we, we've got all these worries about carbon in the atmosphere for example but yeah in, in just in basic terms it is very simple things like soil actually drains better when it's not disturbed or cultivated because you haven't broken structure all soil has a structure before we intervene you know otherwise the, the whole place would be a mess you know? <laughs> uh, and your lawn wouldn't work and all that kind of thing um, so you're leaving that alone and, and, and you're not confusing the, the soil life with by, by making zones of different density and you get things like perch water table where you've got loose soil on top and then the water goes down and hits the undisturbed soil below the undug and, and that makes a, a capillary layer that water struggles to get through because of how water makes the skin and that can channel the water sideways, it doesn't drain soil damage. So, so no dig actually drains better, contrary to what's often said, you know. It's often said, oh, we need to dig your soil to aerate and drain, you know, actually, it's not true. It's the other way around. And, and you've got the aeration there already, but you've also got the moisture holding capacity, which you haven't disturbed as well. Uh, you've got fewer weeds because disturbed soil grows weeds. And, you know, this is a really interesting one because looking into it, I'm more and more sure that soil, it's, it's like a skin of the earth, if you like. It's like an organism, you know, if you think of it like a, a being almost. And, and if you disturb it, it's a, it's a disturbed being or <laughs> I was going to say person, but it's not quite the same thing. Uh, but it, basically the, the recovery process, it needs to recover. You know, the, the kind of language is, is the same. And any organism which is disturbed needs to recover. And when you disturb soil, it needs to recover. And it does so by weeds. And, and the English language is fascinating here because recovery by weeds is literal recovery. And in farming language, you often hear chickweed. It's a weed that you often get if you disturb the soil, like, like digging or rotivating. There's a saying that chickweed follows the rotivator. It's a annual and very fast growing weed, and it has a really tenacious root system. Any farmers listening to this will know it very well. Uh, almost like little wires going into the soil. And, and basically what they're doing is, is kind of binding the soil back together from all that massive breaking apart that's been done by the machine. So, you know, when you start to look at things in this different way, it, it becomes totally fascinating because you see the sense of what's happening right in front of your eyes. And, and instead of it becoming a battle with chickweed, which it would be if you're a digger and rotivator, you kind of, you can reason your way through that and see, oh, well, if I maybe don't disturb it, I won't get the chickweed in the first place. And chickweed is, a, I don't see it here. You know, it's just a weed that doesn't grow yeah. in a node garden, for example. So there's lots of things like that that I'm learning all the time um, that, that link into deeper understandings about the soil. Fascinating. Back in those early years then, how did it feel producing food in a way that was so countercultural <laughs> to what the rest of, you know, oh, all the, okay, the farmers yeah. around the country were doing? That's another good question. Uh, basically, I kept my head down uh, in the village in Chapter Montague. Um, yeah, people were very nice and friendly, but I didn't talk much about what I was doing. And I couldn't see there was a huge interest really, but 
people did respect that I was at least producing decent amounts of food. But it, yeah, you, you didn't really, uh, it, it certainly, it was very fringe. And so most people were not doing it or not, not particularly interested. And so that's why I think I and many other organic growers and gardeners tended to gravitate to our, our own kin and, and the annual conferences we had, you know, where we all got together and that kind of thing and magazines that um, I did some writing for and organisations, that kind of thing. You also pioneered something that's become popular up and down the country, and that's the vegetable box scheme. Yeah, I mean, I would never have thought. <laughs> My first idea of that was in 1983, and I, I put a little sign up in the shop window in Castle Kerry. There's, it's still there, actually, the old bakehouse. Um, it's now a restaurant. It was a shop. It was pioneering whole food shop in 1983. I think it may have opened even, and I put up a little... Um, sign it was Sue Roxborough Wilson, who, who was the owner. She was very supportive, and, and I said, you know, would you like, would you be interested in, in, in a weekly box of whatever's in season? And there was a lot of sort of shaking of head. Oh, what was this idea? <laughs> but I got six customers, so I had six weekly boxes. And then by 1984, I had ten, and um, it just gradually grew through the 80s. And by 1989, I was maybe doing 60 or 70, and it, it, then the idea was starting to catch on. I was talking about it. And yeah, for a while, that was quite a big way of selling. I do want to bring us a little bit more up to date. But firstly, on your website, there's a couple of sentences just sort of thrown away, really, about your time in Africa, which sounds fascinating and also terrifying at the same time. What took you out there? And can you maybe just share a little bit of some of the highlights? Uh, Yeah, that's a really long story, actually. But to cut it short as much as I can, my... Father died in 1988 and he left me some money and I'd been feeling through the 80s that my work was not being valued. I'd, I was working really hard and not earning a huge amount selling vegetables, like you don't really. <laughs> so I went to look at it, uh, it was a brief holiday in January in 1990 with a friend who was looking to buy a farm in France and so we, we toured around a few properties. Uh, he didn't buy a farm but I bought an old mill and I decided to take a year out you know it's a very privileged position to be in but uh, while I was there uh, reflecting on life <laughs> I had an old friend who'd been a minister in Kenneth Kaunda's government in Zambia he was president of Zambia at the time and he said you know come on what are you doing down there kicking your heels you, you could go out to Africa and, and you know help some people there to do organic growing and, and that kind of thing and, and I took him up on that and he, he, he set it up and, and um, gave me some lessons of introduction and all that kind of thing. And I ended up in Zambia. But while I was on the aeroplane, the results of the election happened to come in just then. And Kaunda had lost <laughs> and the new guy uh, was very anti Kaunda, And it meant that all my lessons of introduction were worse than valueless. Uh, I was almost seen as somebody I didn't want. And so I, I was in a bit of a tricky situation because I was in the country. Uh, but I did manage to find, um, I borrowed a bicycle from, from a, a farming friend I knew at that and ended up in a remote village in southern province and started a market garden, or no, not really, a garden mall for a school, uh, a primary school. Stayed with the headmaster there. I mean, looking back on it, I can't remember quite how I managed to set all this up. It, it's, it's just, I can imagine it to, to a listener, it must sound a bit outrageous really, but I, I was there for two months and, and created this garden. And then I got a... Uh, a message somehow on the, like, the Bush Telegraph from the governor's office in the nearby town. He said, Mr. Dowden, could you please come and see me? 
and I had no idea what this could be about. Um, so I got on my bike, and it was a two-hour bike ride to get to this town in Southern Province. And I, I was naively imagining he was going to say, Mr. Darling, you're doing a great job there, you know, school for, my, garden for the school. Instead of which, when I got in, he, he was looking at scouts me and he said, uh, Mr. Darling, I'm worried by what I hear that you are smuggling emeralds. I said, what? <laughs> and and um, he, he just kept repeating this point. And, and I had heard that there were emeralds in that region, that there were emerald mines. That was all I knew. And uh, yeah, basically, he, he, he said, you can't go back. Uh, I, I, could, I never went back. So I don't know. I have no idea what happened to that garden or school. And I had to get on a plane and, and leave the country, just like that. And fortunately, the guy who, um, who'd, who'd sent me out there, we managed to correspond somehow, because I don't know, this was 1992, before the days of internet. I uh, must have phoned him, I think. Uh, and I, he found me a place in Kenya, so I, I actually spent two months in Kenya, and that was a bit more friendly to me. <laughs> but while the, the long and short of that was in Africa, and I just thought, Okay, Mervyn, you know, you've, you sent me out here and I can see your point why I might be able to help these people, but actually I think I'm better off in Europe. And when I come back, I, I was really fully committed to being in my native continent. <laughs>
With social media, you don't need to go through the establishment hierarchy and network and you get your articles approved by editors, um, by, by quite a small number of people really who control the, the flow of information. And um, you know, I can imagine some people might be listening to this and thinking, well, right, nodding, shaking their heads, yeah, he's not right there. But I, you know, I'd be happy to have a debate about this because I, I think that there has not been a free flow of information and social media is allowing that because people can share new ideas. They're not all correct. There's a lot of rubbish on social media, don't get me wrong. Uh, but, but it means that good ideas can get out there. And something like YouTube and Instagram for me have been big breakthroughs because I can show the images of my beautiful garden and, and also recount how easy it has been for me to, to maintain and run it. Uh, and that's very persuasive for people. And they try it and they can then share on social media their successes. And you've got this ripple effect which is growing you know that's one of the things like you were saying the the, the new success if you like of no dig and lots of other things too uh, because of this ability to share and it's fantastic yeah from what i've seen in my very shallow digging around of of the community mm-hmm. it seems that that group of people who have have ad- adopted this approach is very supportive mm-hmm. of each other would you agree yeah. with that yeah, yeah, totally. It, it feels a very warm and welcoming place. And like on YouTube now, I've got nearly half a million subscribers and I'm still managing to answer all the questions. I don't know how much longer I'm going to keep on doing that, but I really appreciate it. And actually, I get some fascinating feedback from literally all over the world. There's a guy in Bangalore in India who's started a market garden there just based from watching my videos. And he said it's going real success. He's like using millet straw instead of compost, just to give you an idea, you know, the different people are adapting the materials according to where they are. And then he's using that as a way of teaching other people. So, you know, it, it just feels wonderfully reassuring and validating when you hear those kinds of feedback. You mentioned your YouTube channel. Over lockdown in particular, you've gained a bit of a, <laughs> yeah. a, bit of a cult following yeah. uh, on there. Has that been a strange experience? Well, actually, I mean, I would say I had a, I don't know if cult's the word, but I had a very strong following before that. There was a video I made with my son, who's become my main video maker, um, and he was sick. 18 at the time, in 2016, no, he was 17 actually. Um, yes, and, and, and we called it Fourth Summer and, and showing the results of No Dig and how you can make a nice garden. And it was because I wanted to explain the simplicity of it and show the beauty of it, those two things together. And at the time on my YouTube channel, I had about 6,000 subscribers and it, you know, it wasn't like a big deal. And then the algorithms or whatever picked it up over the winter and, and that one video has just carried on it's been like a flagship for the channel. It's had over 5 million views now. You know, it's just huge. And, and so that was all happening before lockdown. So I had a really strong base, if you like. And, and yeah, then during lockdown, it kind of doubled in a few months as well. And that was lovely because a lot of the people coming on then were not so much traditional gardeners. They were people new to it completely who suddenly had time and a lot of young people. And that's, that's for me, has been a breakthrough just in the last couple of years. So many people in their 20s. Wow, I love it. And I love their youthful energy conversing with them and, and being able to help them as well. I think there's also, there's something about your, the way in which you deliver your kind of knowledge and experience, mm-hmm. which I think for people who are approaching this for the first time, mm-hmm. they find it quite reassuring and almost relaxing as well. <laughs> yeah, no, when you look at, yeah, when you look at like a lot of how social media is all about pace and speed and this and yeah. that, yeah. when you just sort of, walk people around the garden, it's a nice change of pace. Well, that's nice to hear. I mean, I'm very much, I've never been coached or taught how to do it. I'm just doing it (laughs) as I feel it. And and people like that, I'm just happy.
And it turns out, actually, I, people sent me a link, or some guy, he said, no, you should look at this. <laughs> They'd taken a selection of my videos and put them on it. Is it MRSA? This sort of way of relaxing. And it was a, a channel with 40,000 subscribers, you know, where they were they put a selection of the clips from my videos together to help people get to sleep. Because <laughs> they're so relaxing. <laughs> yes. It's ASMR, isn't it? Same, oh, it. Yeah, same letters, yeah, just in a different, yeah. different yeah. order. Yeah, good. <laughs> you talked about the kind of newcomers, the people who are maybe in their 20s, young adults, who are approaching kind of grow your own for the first time. Mm. Are you seeing different reasons why people are starting uh, doing that in their own lives as well? Yeah, it, it very much so. And it, it's strong life change or desire for life change. It's a difficult one because it's, it's not an easy way to make a living, say to be a, a market gardener, whether you're nerdy or whatever you do. But, but there are people who maybe have got a second string to the bow and that's, that's what you need really. Um, so you got you can earn some money doing something else, but also, gain a lot of health and happiness and being outdoors um, and it's making that side of life possible. Um, you know, health obviously is such a hot topic at the moment, although funny enough disease is more the hot topic, but it should be health. <laughs> and, and you know, this link of, for example, soil microbes to gut microbes and, and the increase of health you can have from being outdoors and eating food grown in healthy soil, I think we're going to hear a lot more about that over the coming years, what we're starting to know. The other thing, which is, I guess, somewhat related, this week we've seen some, some difficult truths to confront in terms of the recent report on climate change mm-hmm. and, I suppose, the effect that humans have, have had on that. Is there a role that can be played by people's gardens in this fight oh, against so climate change? Yeah, I mean, that's a brilliant point because what I'm finding now from working with this scientist here uh, she's measuring the soil in uh, there's one bed I dig every December and incorporate the compost in the the neighboring bed I it's no dig so I simply put the same amount of compost on top so each bed since 2012 has had the same addition that's the bottom line and she's measuring the carbon in the soil of each bed and what she's found over six months of taking samples is that she hasn't yet put a figure on it because she hasn't got the final results, but she says there's a highly statistically significant difference between the two, and there's a lot more carbon in the no-dig, basically. So that is suggesting how, I mean, no one really knows for sure, but it's probably common sense kind of tells you that if you disturb soil, you're exposing it to air, and carbon particles in the soil will be oxidizing and turning CO2, so you're losing carbon that way. But I think also there's probably some carbon sequestration possibly going on because you've got a much stronger, healthier colony of microbes in undisturbed soil. Maybe it's even pulling some in. We don't know for sure. You know, the avenues of inquiry here are fascinating. And I would say to anyone listening, you can do your bit for climate change. But if you are, you know, a person who likes to dig and rotate, whatever, just stop. You absolutely don't need to. Take it from me and many others. That, and, and, and you'll enjoy, I'm sure you'll enjoy gardening more, but you'll also be doing a bit for climate change. I know from your videos and, and your writing that you're always looking for, for new techniques. Mm. What in particular has caught your eye over the last year or so? Well, it, I would say more in the longer term, actually. I, it's something I call energy gardening. And it, it links to what is science. And it so happens, actually, I've just agreed to give a talk and have a debate about this in Castle Kerry, just down the road. There's ladies starting a cafe in Tifuca at the market house there. Um, because I was also just speaking on the phone with a journalist from The New Scientist about this very thing too, and you know, how can science understand gardening? And I would say, science needs to accept that it can't measure everything. 
Yeah, scientists, I, I think, sometimes need to be more humble. Just because they're scientists does not mean they know it all or can measure it all. And science tends to rely very much on measurement, and therefore if there are things you can't measure, that means even science can't find out all the answers. And things it can't measure at the moment are more subtle energies, such as are found in, for example, biodynamics. Uh, this is a method of gardening which was popularised by Rudolf Steiner uh, in the 1924 lectures he gave uh, in Eastern Germany. And it, nobody really understands it, or nobody can quantify it, put it that way. And yet you've got a lot of hard-nosed farmers who basically don't do things if they don't work and don't make money, who are practising biodynamics. And, you know, that's a very strong evidential starting point. And it's something I'm fascinated by, but I could not give your listeners the the facts and figures behind it, but I do, I don't, I'm not fully practicing biodynamic thing, but I do, twice a year we, we stir um, a special potion of, of horn manure into water and flick it onto the soil, and I feel it energizes soil in ways that we, we don't understand. And, you know, I think there's so much still to find out. There's another fascinating one, a guy called Victor Schauberger, who was an Austrian forester 100 years ago. He discovered that the use of copper tools is much more beneficial to soil and plant growth than the use of iron tools. And his grandson now is making these copper tools in Austria, so the, the idea has lived on, and, and quite a few gardeners are using them. And again, it's almost impossible to quantify the results except to see that growth is strong and healthy. Um, I'd like to set up two beds here where, you know, we're working copper and iron. It's just I'm limited in my time and that kind of thing. Uh, but you know, the, the avenues for inquiry are massive. We're in August. And this will be going out over the late summer bank holiday. At this point in the year, what's left to be done? Well, believe it or not, it, there's still quite a lot of sowings you can make, particularly if you, if you want to grow salad over winter. Now, there's things like Mizuna, Salad Rocket, Winter Purslane, Landcress, a lot of slightly unusual salads that you could sow at this time of year. Lamb's Lettuce, actually that's a really good one, corn salad. Um, and if you can get a bit of undercover space, like if you've got a greenhouse in your garden and it might well be half empty over winter you know if you fill a few mushroom boxes that you can get free from any store fill them with multi-purpose compost and sow some seeds in those you can keep them on the bench keep them watered over winter you can be picking leaves more than you will outside just because you've got a bit of protection so you could probably keep yourself in salad over winter by starting now that's one positive thing and then looking ahead you could start you know maybe that patch of weeds that's not very slightly you could you could mulch it and lay cardboard and compost and and start reclaiming your garden a bit, those kinds of things. For those who might have maybe missed the no-dig opportunity this year, mm -hmm. what's the sort of tip for them? When do they start? Is, start is now, now, start now. I would say wherever you are in the year, actually start now. Partly because it'll just get you outside and get you involved and just don't put it off. There's no need to. Say you've got, say you've got a patch of weeds or a lawn or a bit of grass that you want to turn into somewhere for growing. Uh, cardboard and then if, if you can get hold of some multi-purpose compost or maybe some green waste compost from um, Viridor, Dimmer, you know that kind of thing, put on top, uh, leave, it, leave it a bit um, often because especially the green waste compost is often sold a bit fresh and needs to settle a bit but if it's multi-purpose compost from, from, from a sack you could plant into it straight away and things you can plant in, in like early October, garlic for example, you, you could start some garlic and have, have a garlic harvest by next June. Just for example, a few onions in. Broad beans you can sow in November. So there's things still that you can sow. Spring onions, uh, if you sow spring onions, right now this weekend is perfect time actually to sow spring onions. And, and there'll be very small plants over winter. And then 
Next spring, you'll thank your lucky stars that you did that because they'll suddenly grow and give you wonderful harvest in April and May. Fantastic. Coming out of the lockdowns, you've been able to restart things like courses and open days. Mm. How does it feel having people back here? Oh, totally joyful. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like, oh, lockdown, honestly. <laughs> I, I, I survived it very well because partly because I was doing a lot more online. And actually, it was fine. But I, I realise now how much I was missing the human contact. And what really stuck in my mind, I was asked to give a talk at a no-till farming conference in Hertfordshire in Hitchin. And uh, we turned up in the, in the morning and uh, already it was like, hang on a minute, this feels like a fair. It was a huge car park. The farmer turned the whole field into car park. It turned out there were two and a half thousand people there. There was something like 26th of June, just after the, you know, things opened up. And I was giving my talk in a big tent, open-sided, and 200 people there. And at the end, they, they gave me a round of applause and it's just like, wow, I completely forgotten that feeling. You know, it was wonderful. And, and having people here on day courses and just being able to talk with them and swapping notes and yeah, the, the joyful feeling in the air, actually, amazing. And we got open day, actually, if, if we're going out live bank holiday, open day here 4th September, and probably there'll still be a few tickets to, to buy. You can buy them from my website and it's in aid of charity. Um, they're £30 each, but 80% of that is going to Send a Cow and Promise Works charities. And um, you can come along and have a look at homemakers. Charles, we're now going to play Somerset Who's Who, which is Yikes. <laughs> which is the game where you have to uh, tell me which identity you think is behind someone with a Somerset connection. So the way it's going to work is I'm going to give you a name and then two descriptions of who that person might be or have been, uh, and you have to guess which one is the, the real one. Okay. So I've got five names. Uh, and we'll see how you go. As you're going to be the first episode of this, this season, this is the first time anyone's ever played it. Oh, right. Which is quite exciting. <laughs> so you're setting the bar for, for quality here. <laughs> All right. So your first name is Sir John Delamere. So was Sir John Delamere A, a 16th century landowner from Somerton, or B, the builder of Nunny Castle in 1373? Well, I'll be perfectly honest, a complete guess. I, he sounds more like a 16th century landowner from Somerton. He built Nanny Castle, I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, right, fair enough. So we'll try the try next one. Uh, next one is Barbara Kelly. So was Barbara Kelly A, a pioneering police officer and MBE recipient, or B, a long-distance runner who held the British record for 5,000 metres? Ah, the former police officer. Correct. Right, thank you. Right, so that's one out of two so far. <laughs> uh, number three is Daniel Catan. Was Daniel Catan, or is Daniel Catan, uh, a Mexican opera composer who was educated at Millfield, or the 2007 UK Scrabble champion? <laughs> well, I'll be totally honest, that one I don't know. And uh, Yeah, he must have been the Scrabble champion, wasn't he? He's the opera composer. <laughs> oh, right, okay. From, so I guess he came over for school and then went back to Mexico and wrote operas. Very remote Somerset connection. Very remote Somerset connection, yeah. It's quite tenuous. <laughs> uh, all right, so number four is Sarah Siddons. So was Sarah Siddons A, the first female mayor of Wells, 
or B, an 18th century actress most famous for her portrayal of Lady Macbeth? Wow. Well, I, I don't know where you got these names from, but that one, again, I don't know. So, pure guess, she sounds like she could have been the first Mary of Wales. She's the actress, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, okay. All, right. All right, so last one. Last one is Francis Grimshaw. So, was Francis Grimshaw A, a 1920s modernist poet, or B, former Archbishop of Birmingham? I feel I should know that one. Ah, but again, I don't actually. Must be the Archbishop of Birmingham. That is correct. Phew. Well. So you got two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, out well, of five. I'm intrigued to see how this goes. In the future. <laughs> you're, you're challenging us. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Well, there's always. I'm not going to make it easy. There's no, always going to be enough. a bit of a bit enough. of work. Also, it's, it's education, isn't it? Quite <laughs> yeah. You've learned some things about Mexican opera composers now. Totally. So. <laughs> uh, Charles, thank you so much for your time. Before we go, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Well, if you just put my name in YouTube, it'll come up with lots of fascinating things you can watch there. Or same on Instagram, a very busy account where I'm giving a lot of advice as well, actually. Um, maybe chug along to my website and then loads of books. you probably find them in local bookshops as well. So, yeah. Charles Daddy. <laughs> Charles, thank you uh, for being a guest, for sharing your story. It's been a delight talking to you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Music on all Somerset Stories productions is created by Jazar, who can be found at betterwithmusic.com. See you next time.